The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I find that the best people to have a conversation with about the connection between food, health, and agriculture are actually farmers. And I'm delighted to welcome back for our second week Mr. Howard Vliger. He is a biological and crop nutrition advisor, and he is based on a family farm near Maurice, Iowa, which is in the northwest section of the state. Mr. Vliger began studying GMO crops in 1994. He is fortunate to work with some of the leading scientists from around the world on research products involving GMO crops and involving the chemicals that are used on GMO crops. And he is also a board member. He's on the board of directors for the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and the Council for Healthy Food Systems. And so I want to welcome Mr. Vliger back. And this time we're going to be focusing on a journal that we just had time to touch on last week, and the title of the journal article is A Long-Term Toxicology Study on Pigs Fed a Combined Genetically Modified Soy and Genetically Modified Maize, or Corn Diet. It was published in the June 2013 issue of the Journal of Organic Systems. So welcome back, Mr. Vliger. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, last week we spoke about some of the effects of genetically engineered crops, that the pesticide that's either genetically engineered within the crop or the herbicide glyphosate or Roundup that the plants have been genetically modified to withstand spraying and how the glyphosate affects soil microbiology and therefore plant, animal, and human health. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in publishing the study. You're the second author. And this particularly was a study on pigs. And I should let our listeners know that pigs have a similar GI system to humans. So they make a very good study model. But how did you get involved or how was your interest sparked in looking at how GM crops affected hog health? Well, because of the consistency of the health problems that we were seeing through our customers' livestock operations, when they fed the GM grain, specific problems would show up, and, and digestive and reproductive were at the top of the list. And we had the opportunity in some cases to put GM grain in the feed, take it out, put it in, take it out. And one example that comes to mind on hogs, the ileitis, salmonella, and bloody bowel problems that the pigs were experiencing while they were eating GM corn took that out of the ration, put conventional corn in the ration. Within 10 days, the problem was gone. Took the conventional corn away, put the GMO corn back in the ration. Five days maximum, the problems were presenting themselves again. Put the non-GM corn in the ration, the problems were gone within 10 days. And it, it was very, very consistent. I was calling this anecdotal, or not, excuse me, not anecdotal. I was calling it coincidental or circumstantial. And my, my friend, Dr. Elaine Ingham, said, no, Howard, that's anecdotal information. Now take it to the next level to do the scientific study to document what's really happening. And that, coupled with the evidence that we had collected from taking pictures at a hog slaughter plant of hog stomachs that were either fed the GM corn and soy 
with and or without antibiotics in their ration, and hog stomachs that were fed a completely non-GM ration, no antibiotics, on, on a, a full intensive total program of healthy, biologically, nutritionally dense produced crops, those showed us the healthy hog stomachs. So we had collected all of this preliminary information, and as Dr. Ingham said, anecdotal, then it was just a matter of, of finding the right researcher to work with, and, and a gentleman who knew Dr. Carmen arranged a phone call between her and myself, and, and we discussed it, and she says, yes, this, this is something I would really like to do, and, and she helped start the whole scientific side of it. We wrote the protocol together and, and fine-tuned it and had input from other extremely qualified researchers to really tweak it and make it as solid and as sound as you could do out in the real world. Mm -hmm. It was not done in a laboratory. It was done in real life. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to, hey, we're seeing this problem out here at ground level. Let's see what we can do as far as proving or disproving the validity of what's going on. And Dr. Judy Carmen is based at the Institute of Health and Environmental Research in Kensington Park, Australia, and she's also affiliated with Health and the Environment School of the Environment, Flinders University in Bedford Park in Australia. So worldwide, there has been observation and interest in how genetically engineered feed is affecting livestock. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'm fortunate to communicate with scientists and work to varying degrees with scientists in Australia, Hungary, France, Denmark, the UK, South America, and I'm sure there's countries that I haven't thought of, but all over the world, the top people in their respective fields, I feel very, very privileged to be able to work with them on an ongoing basis in a variety of ways. You know what's so scary, Howard, is that for the average consumer, I don't think that we really understand just how extensive genetic engineering feed and food is in our diet. So for farmers who say, you know, I've seen a change in my animals. I wonder, I read this report, I wonder if they'd be healthier if they had the non-GMO grain. I think I'd like to try it. And then you find out how difficult it is to get the non-GMO feed. At least that's what farmers in my region tell me. It's more expensive. Perhaps they can't get the seed. If they don't order it early enough, the, the non-GMO seed might not be available. There's contamination issues. You're a farmer. Tell me what it's like from the field. Can you get non-GMO feed? How easy is it? Yes, and thankfully the pendulum swing is definitely on the way back. The corn is leading the way in that regard. And, and the biggest thing that's happening, I think, in the corn is the failed performance of the, the smart stack and the, and the latest and the greatest where they're trying to put everything but the kitchen sink in the, in the yeah, hybrid because they're just not performing out in the field. And, of course, the glyphosate, as that residue in the soil continues to increase every year in these fields, they're seeing more and more nutrient tie-ups, more plant disease issues. They can't put enough fungicide on to keep that crop healthy. And people are waking up to it mm-hmm. and realizing that this is not going the right direction. So that is changing and I think creating a, a great opportunity for many small seed companies that are doing their their due diligence, they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's and doing good, sound genetic hybrid development like they should be where some of the, the bigger operations may be focused on 
the tech fees that they can collect per bag, and, and they're counting on that more than they are the sound genetics. Mm-hmm. Well, that's changing. The problem in the recognition in the livestock thing, the implementation of it in a lot of cases was very rapid to where I can remember the one seed DSM I worked with. The first year there was BT corn, he talked about a dairy customer that had planted just a little bit of BT corn, and they chopped a big silage pile, and they knew where that BT corn was in the pile, and every time they hit that BT corn, the cows would back off feed a little bit. And, you know, geez, why'd they do that? Well, then, guess what? The next year, the seed company pushed the BT so hard that they talked everybody into buying the higher-priced seed, which was better for commissions than maybe was the farmer. Of course, if they didn't have good sound hybrids, then it may have worked. But they switched the whole pile. Well, guess what? The cows didn't have the choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that that implementation was so rapid that it became a new normal to have these problems. Right. You know, if everybody in the neighborhood has that problem, what do you call it? You call it normal. Right. Well, no, it wasn't normal. Right. But it was a new normal, and especially to the older veterinaries in animal health, a lot of them realize we didn't used to have all these problems. Mm. The really sharp ones see, hey, there's a connection between how this crop is raised and how it's going to affect the health and the productivity of these animals. So thankfully, there's more and more awareness of it, and we have seen and helped a lot of operations switch back. And you will not convince them that they should ever feed a genetically engineered forage or grain to their livestock again if they want to be as profitable and effective as possible, irregardless of how easy the herbicide-tolerant crops may be. Now, some operations that have always used high antibiotic use, they may be getting along just fine and not seeing a difference. There are different variables and circumstances that will show up in different areas, but the one operation I think of that when they called me the two days after they switched their nursery to non-GMO corn, and their antibiotic use dropped 85% the day after they switched the pigs to the non-GMO corn. Mm. Well, they had that all documented, and records kept. They documented the amount of antibiotics used. They documented the amount of time spent giving the actual shots to the pigs. They have everything black and white. You will never convince them that they should ever go back to a genetically engineered crop. Mm-hmm. Now, the beauty of this particular study is as you say, it's it's really the first study that you're aware of that was conducted on a large number of pigs. You used 168 pigs, if I'm reading this correctly, and it was for 22.7 weeks, which is described in this paper as being the normal lifespan of a commercial pig from weaning to slaughter. And prior to that, most of the studies were shorter term. So we finally have a long-term health study on hogs fed GMO grain. And what did you find? The two significant statistical findings in the study were, and we did a complete autopsy. Uh, When the animals, they were all identified, they were ear tagged, they were tattooed, everybody had a number that was all recorded in the slaughterhouse. We had all of the containers labeled and identified. We matched everything up. We took the viscera or basically all of the organs from the inside of the animal from the hog slaughter plant, had two licensed practicing veterinaries with vast amounts of experience in hogs and hog health, and we did a complete autopsy on all the animals. 
weighed the organs, inspected everything, had the protocols established, and when it was all said and done, you put the numbers into the chart, the scientific chart, which Dr. Carmen did that, and the significant finding was the gilts of the GM-fed, the weight of their uterus was 25% heavier than the non-GM-fed, and the other significant finding was the severe inflammation in the stomach was 2.6 times greater between male and female on the GM-fed than it was in the non-GM-fed. And when you break that down to female and male on the stomach, the severe inflammation, the females were 2.2 times greater to have the severe inflammation, and the males were four times greater to have the severe inflammation. Interesting that the males are more affected than the females. Why that happened, I don't know. And again, as you mentioned, it's the first time this has ever been done. Basically, for the lifetime of that pig that it ate solid food, it it came off of mama nursing milk, it went on the GM and the non-GM feed and the rations, they followed it all the way to the slaughterhouse until they were pulled off the day before they went to the slaughterhouse. They were on those diets all the way through. And I guess one significant factor to me about this is the so-called safety studies that have been conducted by industry have lasted for 7 days, 14 days, 21 days, 30 days, or at the most 90 days. I am not aware of any study where they have done a complete autopsy to examine all the parts of the body of the animals that they were fed to accurately determine if there was anything right or wrong, good, bad, or otherwise. There has been no firm safety testing, and especially not for a lifetime. If this is in the food supply and the children in our country are going to consume it from the day they start to eat solid food until the day they leave this earth, don't you think it's important that they do a few studies on some animals for their lifetime to find out? This pig study is one and the Seralini study on rats is the other. That's the only two and they've both been independent and they've both documented significant cause for concern. And what happens to the people that do the study? They get bad-mouthed in every way imaginable by the industry that's raking in the money year after year, collecting the technology fees on the seed that they're promoting. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Mr. Howard Vliger. He is a biological and crop nutrition advisor. He lives on a farm, a family farm near Maurice, Iowa, which is the northwest section of the state. He became interested in studying GMO crops in 1994 and has been working with leading scientists around the world on research projects involving GMO crops and glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. GMO crops that are Roundup resistant are genetically engineered to withstand the spraying of glyphosate. He is also on the board of directors for the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and the Council for Healthy Food Systems. And I wanted to have you on today because of this new recent report that came out in June of this year, 2013, a long-term toxicology study on pigs fed a combined GMO soy and GM maize or GM corn diet. And I think that as a human nutritionist, then, I'm very interested in looking at animal studies because one has to wonder, can we then say we're seeing these effects in hogs? Should we also be concerned about effects that we may or may not be seeing in humans? And we know that we've seen a lot more 
conditions related to GI intolerances, say to wheat, for example. We've seen an increase in allergies among children, and this is not anecdotal evidence. This is actually hospital discharge rate data that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention studies. If you talk to people about fertility issues, they'll tell you that infertility rates are up, but it's hard to tease out the fact that we're a fatter nation now, and so obesity is part of the problem. But you mentioned earlier in our discussion that you saw two issues among hogs fed GMO grain, and one was fertility and the other was digestive. Tell me a little bit more about the fertility issues that you saw and how the weight of the uterus might be affecting fertility. Well, the, the, the issues that were observed, whether slight or extreme, starting with BT, were 1.6 less pigs per litter, or 30% reduction in conception, or 70% reduction in conception. When BT was fed during the insemination or breeding phase of the ration of the sows, in southwest Iowa, there was a case of a different BT corn that when they fed that to the sows, they had something called pseudo-pregnancies, where it was a false pregnancy. They would go full term, and all they would deliver would be a a sack of water in the afterbirth. There were no actual piglets. And when that article was published in the Farm Bureau Spokesman, the man that, that they wrote the article about started getting phone calls from how many different farmers in the area that, lo and behold, they had they were feeding that same BT corn and they had the same problem with their hogs. But mysteriously, the people that investigated could not get a possible connection between that BT corn and the problem, but when they did away with feeding that BT corn, the problem went away, so I'm not quite sure what happened there. Mm. We should let our listeners know what BT corn is. Would you, Howard, just give us a brief overview of that? BT is Bacillus thuringiensis, and that's a insecticide that they insert with genetic modification into the plant that if a bug comes and bites that plant, it will kill the bug. It, it basically causes deterioration, ir- inflammation. It'll cause their stomach to explode. They've told us that it will break down in the digestive tract. That's been scientifically proven to not be true because the Aziz study out of Canada, which was published January of 2010, I believe, I could be a year off on that, they found the Cry1-ABBT toxin in 93% of the pregnant women's blood that they tested, and 80% of the women passed that toxin onto their baby's blood. I remember that report, yeah. The the truth has not been told by the industry as far as what possible side effects there might be. So that fertility and then the incidence of the digestive issues, we were seeing that consistently when we would put the BT or GMO uh, herbicide tolerant, you know, it intensified as we got more options in the uh, genetically engineered crops that were put into the on the market and raised in crop production and, and put into the feed supply. And the one thing that we didn't expect and we're not prepared to document in the study, we weighed those hogs every week, which was part of the protocol. They needed to be weighed every week. And there was only one person that knew which hogs were on the genetically engineered corn, and that was the person that put the feed in the feeders. Nobody else knew it. Mm -hmm. But the thing that everybody noticed was this group over here and this group over here, which happened to be 
and, and nobody said anything about it, but when we ran those genetically engineered ration pigs through the, the circle corral to get the weights, they were irritable and they were fighting and biting. They had a bad attitude. They had a bad disposition. What was causing it, we're not know. We, we don't know. The non-GM fed pigs, they were content. They thought this was fun. We were going to go play now. We get to get out of our normal pen. We get to run down here, and we go through this little thing, and we jump on there, and then we get to run around and have fun while the next, the rest of our group is getting weighed. Okay, you're in the, the human side of things. What has changed as far as the mood, the ADHD, the autism, what's going on in our human population? Is there a correlation? I can't say it from a scientific standpoint, but it sure makes you wonder what's going on when you look at the increase of those diseases in the last 15 years and you look at the increase of the implementation of the GMO crops and the glyphosate use in our country. Well, I think you raise a very good point because one of the pieces of information that certainly dietitians receive, and I'm assuming that farmers do as well, is that, hey, we've been eating this stuff for 20 years and everything's fine. And I always like to remind people that everything isn't fine. If you look at the allergy rates, the ADHD rates, the autism rates, they have skyrocketed over the past, as you say, 15, 20 years. So what is going on? And of course, being a dietitian, I, I always look to food first. And being a farmer, you have a much closer relationship with the plants and the soil and the animal relationships and how that might affect human health. But I think certainly we should be taking a precautionary principle and at the very least labeling our foods. It is odd that the United States does not have national labeling when countries like Russia and China and Korea do. We would think that we would have this good old American freedom to choose the kind of food we want or don't want to feed our children. So what is the next step for you? I mean, you've got some great data here. You've got hog data. We haven't really figured out exactly whether it could be the BT corn or the genetically modified soy, which has been sprayed with glyphosate. Which do you think is the offending ingredient? Perhaps is it a synergistic relationship? How do we sort through these facts and or these correlations, and what are our next steps? Well, is it synergistic? In my mind, yes, it is. And it's great that I get to work with all the researchers and the scientists that I do. I, I, I really value that in, in a way that is hard to even describe. And, and I have a tremendous respect for all of the ones that I work with. Um, I ask myself a question, why can't some of the rest of the ones that seem to be cheerleaders for the whole GM movement take an objective look at what's going on and realize that things are not normal or the way they used to be you know, what is the next step? There absolutely needs to be more research conducted. I do not for a millisecond believe that they have documented any safety of anything. The way in which it's been approved in our country is a sham. I've been to Washington, D.C. with meetings with USDA and pointed that out to them very vividly, that this thing has not been tested. It's not been validated. It has been the right person has been at the right place in the right regulatory agency at the right time to basically give a green light to the whole thing and no need to test because it's 
substantially equivalent and generally recognized as safe. There is no science behind documenting the safety of it as far as I'm concerned. And anybody that says otherwise, that's fine. They're entitled to their opinion, but let's prove it. And like one of my researcher friends said, relative to the criticism that's being given to either the Seralini study or our study, they have every right to say it's not right. And if they're a good scientist, they will replicate the study and prove that we're wrong. I've yet to hear anyone offer to do that, and there are a number of individuals from a different number of different areas that have the capabilities to do it probably much more effectively than what we did, but I think what we did was a very, very strict protocol and controlled properly and conducted as scientifically as could be done in an environment that wasn't in a controlled lab like most of the scientific research is conducted. Has Iowa State expressed any desire to work with you on these projects? I've not received any contact from them in any regard. Yeah, I think one of the problems that we face with our land-grant institutions is that with reduction in independent funding, government funding, there has been more privatization of the research funding. So a lot of the research that takes place in our land-grant universities is funded by agribusiness, and they have a certain agenda. So I don't know if you talk about that at all when you speak around the country. It's a reality that's in place, and I have a suggestion on what could be done to fund the necessary research that should be here to document the safety or harm, potentially either way, of this drastic change in the food supply. It's not substantially equivalent. It's not generally recognized as safe. There is in excess of $8 billion of technology fees generated on the seeds that are sold in this United States of America only, and there's other countries around the world that are also involved in genetically engineered crop. There's excess of $8 billion of technology fees. Let the companies that are collecting all of that money put the research money in a blinded trust and give it to the land-grant universities that are capable of doing the research, and then they have to keep their hands off. They cannot intimidate. They cannot try to get the non-tenured people fired if they come out with results that are not positive towards the project they funded. That money in there and let the research be conducted that should be. You're correct in what you say of how the funding has dried up. I've been told of quite an accurate story of how that all happened, but that's a lengthy story, so I won't go into it. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up. I'm sorry. Our 30 minutes is up, but I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's an excellent idea for research dollars that are so sorely needed. I want to just, in closing, very quickly let our listeners know that we will provide a link to the article in the Journal of Organic Systems so that you can read about Mr. Vliger's research. We've been speaking to Howard Vliger. He is a farmer. He is a student of the soil based in Maurice, Iowa, and he is a biological and crop nutrition advisor working nationally with researchers about the effects of GMO crops on plant health, 
on animal health and possibly on human health as well. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you so much, Mr. Fligger, for standing up and speaking out about what you have observed to be a problem in our food system. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you.